Thank you everyone for coming. I, I'm here uh, with uh, two wonderful um, panelists. Shall we all introduce ourselves one by one? Um, Krista Kim, I'm a digital artist and I've been practicing digital arts since 2013. I am interested in creating Zen for the digital age, Zen experiences through immersive digital experiences and also now into the metaverse and uh, emerging technology uh, such as AI. Simone, chief metaverse baddie, as the title said, of POC Lab. POC Lab is a creative and innovation studio. We focus on bringing brands and consumers together through meaningful virtual experiences. It was founded on the basis that, honestly, when I went to Web3, I just didn't see myself be seen. And so I didn't feel reflected in the technology or in the room. So we founded our company based on the fact I wanted to bring this to be more accessible and have more visible representation of our communities, black and brown, women, LGBTQI+, disabled, to ensure that as we move forward, we're not leaving anyone behind and we're creating safe spaces for everyone. Hi, I'm Amanda Cassett, AKA Amanda.eth. I was on the early Ethereum team, was chief marketing officer at Consensus from near the beginning through 2019, where we built the first Web3 marketing team that brought Ethereum to market, along with MetaMask and Fura, Truffle, and a whole bunch of things that didn't work. But we learned a lot about that too. Started a company three years ago called Serotonin, which is the leading Web3 marketing and product studio. We do all kinds of marketing um, and some other services, and we've built a couple of products and spun them out of our studio. First Mojito, then Franklin, and most recently our platform. I also have the honor of being uh, one of the investors in NFT Now. And we're so proud of Now Media and everything they've built with the gateway. Yeah. Woo. So I guess we'll um, just have this sort of as a roundtable discussion. Um, the topic is niche to mainstream. So I guess we're really addressing you know, how Web3 is really a niche culture and an organic culture based around blockchain technology and decentralization, et cetera. And um, why not share our thoughts about, um, you know, what, what kind of projects, what, how do we reach the mainstream? How does Web3 reach a critical point of scale? And what are your thoughts on that? So for us or our company, we, as I said, we create meaningful experiences. So we really tap into brands, marketing, innovation, DNI. I don't want to just create something to create it. Our experiences are generally edutaining. So our most recent, which you'll see the trailer afterwards, was the Cultureverse. We created a virtual experience celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop with Walmart. I know, Walmart, hip hop, what? I get it. But they're really into testing and learning and they have a platform which is Black and Unlimited that they've already been working with Black creators to supercharge their creativity. One of the reasons we wanted to create a virtual experience was to allow 25 different Black artists the opportunity to be in the metaverse, to understand this technology, to bring their communities in, and for them to finally have their aha moment. Lady Phoenix, I don't know if she's here, she gave me my first aha moment, like, oh, this makes sense. And to me, everyone needs to feel that in their way. Sometimes I feel that Web3 is very precious with the information that we have. We want you to experience it the way that we want you to experience it versus allowing people to have that space and just be in. So we created this experience that 
focused on hip hop through an educating experience. You played a game, but you're also immersed in art, graffiti, fashion, brands that have never, you probably didn't even, I don't know how many people know Jet Magazine, but Jet Magazine is huge in the African-American community. They're in there with a digital experience that will blow your mind. They're actually going to play the trailer because I think the visual is more helpful. And we really wanted to get a sense for people that have never been in the metaverse, that don't understand what it is to really finally get that you don't need the oculars, you can go on it on your phone, and for them to have fun in it. I think they're going to play it. I'm not sure. I keep dropping the line, play the trailer. You're talking a lot about education, and I thought it was really interesting that Walmart is now involved in stepping into uh, Web3 and exploring that. Um, how would you say was the feedback and the experience of the community with Cultureverse? Um, so on Spatial, we just beat, we outperformed every branded experience that has ever been on Spatial. Congratulations. We hit 75,000. And it's because we led with community and culture. We created an experience that was one of a kind that intersected art, gaming, fashion, all of the things, and it was done with meaningful purpose. It wasn't just, let's play this game or let's just sit in this static metaverse experiences. We all know you go in, there's no one there. That's not what we wanted. We wanted you to constantly feel that flow. And Walmart was an incredible partner for the sheer fact that they recognized their testing and learning. It's about the platform. It's not about the product. At a certain point, we were like, maybe you do want your brand somewhere in the experience <laughs> because they were like, no logos, no logos. And not one point was it about pushing product. It was all about pushing brand identity. And they love the fact that when we say Hip Hop 50, Cultureverse, Walmart, everyone is like, Walmart, what? That's the way that they want their digital brand presence to be revisited, to be, look differently. They just don't want to be a retailer. And they're already doing the work. So for us, it's also very important that we're not partnering with brands that just want to check a box, that they have to be doing the work because if it's not, then it's not authentic. It doesn't become a clear story. And that's why we were successful. It felt authentic because it was. Yeah, so authenticity, another key word in, in the space and community. And Amanda, you know, what experiences do you have with brands and from your experience from, you know, these brands engaging with Web3 to reach a widespread audience beyond, right, the mainstream audience? It's so cool to me that brands are using and aligning with art in order to get into Web3. When I started working in this space in 2015, it was not an aesthetically beautiful space. The parents of cryptocurrency are technology and finance. And so the people that we had in our movement in 2015 were people from technology and finance. And it wasn't an aesthetically, sensorily rich kind of scene. It was only when the art use case really came online in the last cycle. And yes, there were some very early adopters in earlier cycles too, but it exploded in the last cycle. And I think that Web3, and we're calling it Web3, not just cryptocurrency, because currency isn't the only use case anymore, which is very cool. Web3 is going to touch every single industry. And every single industry is going to be built on these kinds of new economic rails. And the fact that this technology intersected the art world so early in its lifespan has been so gorgeous and healthy for the space because not only has it brought 
beauty into the space, it's brought a new crop of people into alignment with the movement and the community. And that's brought the brands with it. The brands want to align with beautiful experiences. They're excited about the opportunity Web3 offers to not just sell people a product, but to enter them into an engaged community so that they meet each other, which is completely novel and unique. And we see this in our work, some recent drops uh, and projects that we've worked on, the new Mercedes collection that just came out, NXT, uh, Shiseido, which is all over the place here, which is awesome, working with the Artblocks engine. We are really proud using Mojito to help bring both of those to market. We've worked for a long time with Sotheby's. Even the Simpsons agree that the fine arts use case for NFTs has product market fit. And we're excited to see this next iteration with a lot of emphasis on membership, rewards, and loyalty as this art use case continues to grow as well. Yeah, I, I like all this conversation about building community, about the authenticity of it, and you know how brands want to be involved, how they want the brand alignment with art and movements, the new um, social movements that we are experiencing right now. But, you know, I also look at, you know, the, the mainstream perception of crypto, you know, with FTX and SBF, um, you know, he's going to go to jail forever, I hope. And, um, you know, we all of these negative news stories in the news cycle that really make people have a negative connotation with, you know, with, uh, with NFTs and therefore associate that with, with Web3. Um, there's a lot of work to be done to, to erase those uh, negative connotations. And, you know, one of the ways that I think is effective is by, yes, creating these amazing, um, you know, culture verse and, you know, these kinds of incredible uh, moments, right, that promote uh, black history and, 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 you know, culture, period. But what about um, health and wellness, um, so health and wellness, we're experiencing, um, you know, this mental health crisis around the world. And I basically think that social media is primarily to blame for this phenomenon. Entire generations of young people are experiencing the greatest, uh, um, you know, numbers of loneliness, depression, anxiety, and suicide rates are the highest ever in human civilization. So... Why not harness, um, you know, these scalable potential solutions to deliver mental health, uh, you know, therapies and programming through the power of AI, um, through bringing people together in the metaverse uh, in ways that are accessible and scalable? So that's something that I'm really interested in, because I believe that if you create a use case that brings humanity a solution to a very epic problem, that's how you're going to have niche to mainstream. Um, so I'm actually, uh, my company is actually collaborating, uh, you know, with Deepak Chopra, who will be coming on stage soon, um, to create an AI solution, a conversational AI solution, that's web-based, that um, can provide people with a scalable 24-7 option of speaking to someone like Deepak when you're feeling like you, you need that person to speak to in the moment. Because a lot of people, when they have a problem, 
they find it inhibitive, inhibitive because it's expensive and they just don't have the time or their therapist can book them three weeks from today. So there's always roadblocks from getting mental health, pro- I mean, you know, solutions or help. Why not have that solution through AI? Why not go into the metaverse for group therapies, coaches? People can give you wisdom and advice with life experience because the human condition, human suffering, you know, there are a lot of common elements and stories and wisdom that we can all relate to, right? So that's, that's something I'm interested in as well. Aloha also did something similar to that where they had the meditation. So it was over one million people came together and meditated together in the metaverse. So I think there's, there's a lot of very use, useful use cases to show the importance of this technology. I think what happens is, and I was on a panel with Chris Lyons yesterday, and he said something that felt very relevant. He was in the music industry. They worked with MP3s. He had never been to an MP3 concert, conference. We're all at Web3 conference. Everything is Web3 first. We lead with the technology, the names, the terminologies first. It should be invisible. I hope next year that we don't say anything Web3, that we don't need to mention an NFT, that we are just creating the solutions and making it easier for people. At the end of the day, most people don't know how this works. What they do know is what it does for them, that it makes their life easier. What we're trying to do is make your life easier and have your ownership so now you can also control your life versus it, it being controlled. But right now where we are in the technology, we've led too much, which I do think is hindering the idea of mainstream adoption because as my auntie says, she never knew there was a web two. So how could she possibly know about a web three? What is that? No one walked around like, hey, web two, how you doing? Hey, web one. No one said it, so no, we're saying Web3. And again, you're fundamentally asking people that didn't know there was a two, let's get on Web3. We just need to build, and I think everyone here is trying to build. I mean, today, when I walk through the gateway, this is how you bring mainstream adoption. You change people's mindset. You can no longer look at art and say digital art is not valuable. If you walk through any of these experiences, the emotional relevancy, the way that you are connected to it now change the way that you look at digital art. These are the experiences that will do that. Immersive, I'm clearly very bullish on the metaverse. That's the way people can come in and experience technology in a way that they already know versus us forcing them to come to us the way we want. Gaming is a simple process. Everyone has done it. Those, these are the ways I think that it'll help. Yeah, it's funny. On this topic of bringing people together and collaboration, every technology that's ever really moved humanity forward has been a platform that lets people collaborate on larger scales. Like, what is language? What is religion? Books. Uh, books, books. The Gutenberg printing Internet. press. So good, right? And so um, this is that. This is a substrate for architecting incentive alignment. And its USPs, if you will, are the capability of having root ownership, so self-custodial ownership, actually owning something, um, and then being able to program in incentive structures that are a mix of intrinsic, extrinsic incentives in order to coordinate behavior. And this is one of those step function growth moments. And what I think is important to get away from is this idea that Web3 is a monkey NFT, 
Web3 is this, Web3 is that, right? Web3 is a substrate. It's, it's clay. It's clay that people can learn about and learn to mold if they're builders. And then in terms of reaching people that are users or consumers of those things that have been built, what we say in marketing is, you know, know your audience. If it's an audience that's going to resonate with messaging that includes words like Web3 and NFTs, by all means use it. And if it's going to be an audience that doesn't resonate with that messaging, and if you can abstract the blockchain experience, and there are some great ways to do that today, then, then don't use it. And I've watched n a number of market cycles happen where periodically everyone, like I've been in this space for a few cycles, sometimes everyone thinks you're an idiot, sometimes everyone thinks you're a genius, and you just got to ignore all of them. And sometimes those words get popular again, sometimes those words get unpopular. What's important is building use cases of the tech that actually connect with different audiences using the language that's going to resonate with them. It's like how the internet got adoption. People didn't say, I want to use the internet. People came on for a specific use case. I want to watch a movie. I want to shop. I want to talk to my friend. People all came on for their own reason. And so we see Web3 native companies offering people DeFi products, new, new financial primitives, things you can do that you couldn't do before with, with value. We see artists that already have big fan bases bringing those communities into Web3, and those people are coming in because they care about that art. You see uh, a, a company that already has a lot of fans that's putting Web3 in between their product and their fans where there's already a bunch of demand. And so it's just a new kind of product, as if stickers were just invented and everyone started selling stickers. It's a new product that doesn't cannibalize your existing product lines. So it's amazing for brands. So whatever those use cases are, and they're going to evolve, it's going to be all those different capillaries that bring people into the ecosystem and also kind of that aorta and that superhighway of crypto asset investment. I think that the conversation also has to go beyond, you know, just the commercial aspect of the architecture. I think that Web3 right now has a unique opportunity and actually will scale because of AI. And here's my explanation. The threat of AI is real. When I was at TED, um, you know, in the summertime, I think it was June, I was in Vancouver and I, you know, gave a talk on Web3. Yatsu was with me, Kevin Awoki. And a lot of the talks uh, for this year's TED was centered around the threat of AI, which is, which is a very valid point. The threat of AI to hijack your likeness, your assets, your IP, uh, hijack our lives. And then not only that, but completely dispel what is real versus what is fake. I'm talking about everything that you see in the media post-AI is fake because you don't know if it's real or not. So how do we solve that problem? Blockchain, cryptography. We need a layer of truth that will protect and verify our identity, our assets, uh, everything, our IP. And I think that what we need to think about is the, the redefinition of personhood, of the, you know, our digital identity. By connecting our heartbeat, which is a unique algorithm to every one of us, and recording that in the blockchain, we are therefore creating a key that is uh, an immutable identifier of your personhood, a heartbeat signature. So when you create something, you can basically sign it with your heartbeat. And when you're on a, a podcast or for 
on you know YouTube or something, I can verify with my heartbeat that that is my likeness. That is me. I verify this, so that when it, when AI starts churning out all these defects, whatever does not have a heartbeat verification of the person that's being depicted in the video is fake. Doesn't that make sense? Is that not real utility that will actually be a mainstream, you know, sort of, you know, it, it compels people to use it because it's protection against AI insurgency. Yes. So the, the company that I'm collaborating with is called Tenbeo. T-E-N-B-E-O. They're based out of Brussels. The CEO, um, Atalas Kotuni, is Greek, Botswanian. When she talks about how she founded the company and the whole ethos behind it, she shows me her EU passport versus her Botswanian passport. Her EU passport is like a lot of ours, like Canadian, uh, American, etc., European. Her Botswanian passport is literally a piece of paper with her picture stapled on it. And, you know, anyone can forge it. It can be destroyed anytime. There's no way of protecting identity. And there's so many people who are living without statehood or proper identification. They're not in a ledger. Imagine if every baby in the world were born with their heartbeat in, you know, in a permanent ledger and they're accounted for. You know, that's, that's pretty revolutionary. And that's a very, very strong use case in the world that we need. And that's why she created the company. And now she's, and, and by the way, Tenbeo does not take your data. They're not interested in surveillance capitalism. So they want to, to promote this decentralized self-custody. I own my data. I capture my data through my heartbeat as the key and wallet that you know, captures my data, and therefore I can monetize on my own data. So then opens up a whole new, a whole new opportunity to create data DeFi. Think about that. There's a lot of cool provenance stuff. Um, I, think, I think that use case with AI that you point out is really powerful. I think we're going to go from having a default assumption that content is what it seems to be to having a default assumption that it's not. And there's going to be this giant asymmetry between the amount of content that can be created and how cheaply and the amount of time that humans have to consume that content. And so I don't think we're going to be able to verify that content is real, but I do think that we're going to be able to add attestations to a piece of content on chain by the people that have an interest in that being attested to. Like, let's say Reuters wants to say this is an official Reuters photograph. It can't, attest, it can't prove that it wasn't AI generated, but it can say we're attaching the Reuters stamp to this image to say that Reuters says that this is. In, so, inc so, incidentally, this is what NFT now is doing. Yeah, so there, 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 there's lots of, like one of the low hanging use case, fruit use cases of blockchain is provenance. So like Luxo, like, like everything, right? Like what gives a piece of digital art its value as opposed to right click save? That's the fact that you can do provenance on chain and verify that it came from the original source that it came from. Such a cool low hanging fruit use case of blockchain and crypto that we're going to be able to sort through all this content in the digital world and prove provenance, like Story Protocol, which just got funded by A16Z, is doing is doing provenance for content. So super important, um, and definitely something that's going to end up onboarding a lot of people. Because as you rightly point out, in my opinion, 
we're going to need it in order to do sense making. Getty's actually just started their AI, so they're utilizing Getty's. Getty's. So Getty Images, Good. they're utilizing AI, and they're now providing you though the images for you to duplicate. Oh, so in theory, it's it, it's a little messy. Mm. So instead of yes. now you can have the Getty Images to now use for your AI, let's say your mid journey or things like that, they're pulling them through, and they're using AI to what did they put it as a better quality version which is also very concerning. I'm going to stay in a very positive place. I'm still, honestly, I think these conversations are amazing, but I still also think that the average consumer mainstream is still not even getting why they need to care about it. So I think that we have conversations within our bubble and we're ready to see it move, but the average person doesn't understand why they should care. The urgency is real. A thousand percent. Within five years, we will achieve... You know, AGI, where, you know, AI will be able to think for itself and create for itself. So that that is a real imminent change, and it's dramatically going to change our civilization. So the protections and the architecture of security have to be in place to prepare for that time. You know, I mean, we have to think about our children and our children's children and, you know, the world that they will be exposed to, where everything they see... Uh, well, you know, most of it will be, you know, produced by AI and we have to make sure that we know or they know that's that's something that that person actually created. We have to verify and that's otherwise we will have chaos. Absolute chaos. But here's something cool. Like the UX of blockchain sucks for people, right? Like that's one of the biggest pieces of friction to mainstream adoption. Well, it's perfect for AIs to just wrap all that blockchain-y stuff in a bow and present it to you with a nice user interface. The UX of blockchain was made for AIs to use. So what I think we're going to end up having in the pretty near term is Web3-based economic value rails, and it's going to be AI agents running over those rails. And so the majority of transactions in the medium-term future are going to be conducted by AIs on the blockchain on behalf of people because they're the ultimate digital natives. They're going to use digital native assets and they're going to be able to transparently report and track what they've done on chain on behalf of people using using a nice wrapped up version of the blockchain that can present to, to humans. And so there's a lot of cool infrastructure being built right now that's getting us there. We're seeing big institutions like PayPal, which is one of our partners, produce a stable coin. There's a clear thesis emerging that the future of payments is going to be on chain. And that means there are all these different kinds of value that Web3 can be, can be used as a descriptive wrapper to bring new kinds of value into a modelable digital economy that then AIs can transact with. So we're adding to the total amount of value in the digital economy, and we're simplifying how those transactions happen from the UX perspective of the human. That's, that's the kind of positive utopian spin. So for PayPal, it's backed. So there are different mechanisms for stable coins. So you can do an algorithmic stable coin. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. You can have a stable coin that's fully backed with a currency, which is, which is the case uh, for them. And so you can prove your reserves. You can actually have someone verify that you have the reserves of that fiat currency to back it up. Um, and there are other mechanisms, right? There's rebasing, there's rebasing currencies. You know, people are using the Web3 primitives to come up with all kinds of different 
stable, smooth, flat assets. Would you say that there is a crypto revolution afoot, Amanda? I would. Isn't the revolution already started? So I guess that would also be um, a catalyst for mainstream adoption. So honestly, I think until we show them the reason why, again, the conversations get very esoteric, they need to understand. Right now, everyone is on their phone. They're giving their data away. They're okay with it. What is that tipping point? You're all okay with it. Everyone has literally checked the third party that box. That is power. So, so the, the that, is, that is the power. And we are not connecting that reason that you should now stop to what we're telling you. There is a disconnect and there's connectivity in certain pockets. So yes, crypto use case, here, here, here. But the overall massive shift, when you really have that moment where everyone's like, okay, is all about value. In the financial sector, there's lots of proof value. If I, I'm Jamaican, sending money back home is very difficult. It's easier now. So the tipping point's UX. Like, look, look at what happened when Apple decided to send everyone a push notification all at once saying, do you want to press this button to sh stop sharing all your personal data with Facebook? And they did that because they control the hardware and they were competing with, called Facebook at the time, they were competing with Facebook. And so many people pressed that button that Facebook lost billions in market cap that week because they simplified the choice to opt into privacy into one button. And so th these kinds of outcomes like privacy protection if you're just exhorting people moralistically about why they should do things that's that are complicated, that's going to be pretty frictional. But if you just clean it up into a nice UXed yeah. out button, like right. people it like that. Make it very simple for people to self-custody their data because data is oil. Data is power. power. Right now we are giving it away. We are basically losing huge opportunity cost to these, you know, the companies that are making trillions of dollars on free data that we give away. I don't think that that's fair. And I think that there should be legislation. I think, I actually think that the human rights code has to be updated. I think that the charter of human rights should recognize data sovereignty. And I also believe that our digital identity should also be a human right for all that's connected to your biometrics. Now this kind of legislation will then change the whole macro sort of like, you know, practices. And then I know it's very revolutionary though. I mean, it's crazy to say, think about this, but it's possible. And I think it's important. I think we're going to end up seeing large language models, which are the things that you're using when you're, so when you're using like chat GPT, that's a proprietary large language model and you're feeding it when you put data in there. But there are also even big companies pursuing open source LLMs. Like actually Meta is pursuing an open source driven uh, LLM strategy. And so what that means is, theoretically, open source is going to compete with proprietary LLMs. Theoretically, you're going to end up driving down the cost of LLMs, making it accessible to everybody at a pretty low cost so everyone can use them. So you're not going to be able to actually drive that much financial value just from having access to an LLM. And so, you know, ultimately, I think the market and the competition from open source is going to push us in the direction of widespread access to these tools. Good. The more decentralized, the better. Agreed. As so many people have to be educated about the difference between centralized and decentralized systems and the threat to our democracy, the threat to our freedom, uh, the, the empowerment that every individual would have in a decentralized system 
versus centralized, where everything is, you know, owned by one corporation or one entity, decentralized, where people are basically owning their own sovereignty and their own data. Um, and I think that that's a human rights issue. Wow, it's a very big topic, isn't it? It's a heavy topic, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think like people are going to need some mechanism on the internet to flag that they're people so the internet can present it to so themselves in a reasonable way. Because if if the internet treats you like you're a machine, it's going to give you, it's going to be like a dock dump. It's going to be way more information than you can digest. So you need to be able to like flag them down and say, hey, I I'm a human with probably like an 80 through 120 IQ. Stop feeding me stuff like I, you know, I'm running on GPUs and have a 1000 IQ. And so we're going to we're going to have to have some metric, like maybe it's biometrics, maybe it's something else, to wave to the internet and say, "Hey, I'm a person. Act at my my speed." But it's really fun. Like what I love about this is we're going to become less than the most intelligent being pretty soon, and that means we need to find the human niche elsewhere. And there are other great things humans are capable of other than intelligence. We have some cool emotions. Love is cool. Communities, bonding, you mean arts what, and crafts. What will AI not replace? Yeah, basically, all in this terms great stuff. Communities, yeah. right? Our feelings toward each other, our trust for each other. And if we can use all these tools to actually connect people and get us together and stimulate those kinds of feelings, so those, that experience is the is the human niche. And you know, it, it's fun if that pushes us in that direction because intelligence has never really been our thing. Rote, rote learning. Yes. Yeah, clearly. The, all the robot jobs will go to the robots. AI will take care of all of those jobs. And then what will human beings be left with? I mean, if you want to go on a totally wacky thought experiment, like it could go like this. So like, let's say AI plus robotics just brings down the cost of making physical goods down to zero to the point where anything you want is so easily affordable that money as such, as described today, isn't actually necessary because... It, it doesn't actually mark anyone's status or anyone's ability to access goods because there's no scarcity of goods. And so people will need to find different stuff to do. And uh, I think new ways to describe value. And I think they'll use Web3 to, to, to make an on-chain, on like in-code description of those new types of value. And we'll organize ourselves in, in new ways. And that's kind of the, the utopian vision. Very fascinating. Wow, Amanda. I mean, yeah, wow, deep that's far out. You know, when I think about it, you know, because, you know, when I think about my kids, right, they're teenagers right now. And I think, what is their future going to look like when they're adults, when they're my age? Um, I kind of feel like now we're entering a, a world where, you know, kids our age are, are so well-informed. They're so into their niche and they become experts in their passion, right? Because that's what access to information does for you. You accelerate your learning in real specialized ways, and then you collaborate with others to find solutions to the world problems. Like, I actually think that you're going to have, like, task force-style groups and projects that young people will participate in together and just do wicked stuff. And I think that's an exciting, you know, future. It's entrepreneurial, you know, it's... it's the, I mean, for community, the idea of right now within gaming... You come together. Roadblocks numbers and the reason their numbers are so high is because kids are meeting each other there. They're not meeting each other outside. So the idea that, I mean, I'm obsessed with the idea of AI and the convergence between 3D assets, gaming, what AI will do from a creativity standpoint. 
I'm not quite ready to take on the humanist standpoint. I'm a humanist, not a technologist. So in certain conversations that you're having, it makes me a little uncomfortable. I won't lie. I understand it. And I think that what's frightening is that if there are not humanists participating in this technology, if we just start coming down to just code, 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 we will be lost and we cannot be lost. Technology Terminator. is that part. Technology is not a product. It is a story. What is the story do you want technology to tell? And that's on us to decide. And if we are not participating in the development of these technologies, then it will only be for those. I don't know how much time we have. AI is used for the wash when you put your hands underneath. So you go to the airport, you put your hand, the water comes out, you don't have to touch anything. AI was trained to do that. So when your hand goes, it was all white men whose hands were trained on AI. So when I go, I don't know anybody else, with my melanated skin, it, never, it doesn't always work for me. They had to retrain it because it doesn't see my skin color. And I don't know anybody else has had that experience, but I would be looking at people with white skin and they would do it. And I'm like, well, why is mine broken? It's not broken. It's not seeing me. And that is the problem with technology. It has to see all of us. And we need to be looking at it from a human standpoint, not just a coded standpoint. Yeah, he's going to play the front trailer. Just clear. So cool. Yeah. Thank cool you. project. Cool project. <laughs> Congratulations. Should we wrap it on up? You're looking at me. You want, you want me to say something to wrap it up? I, I, I love the thing about I love the thing about expanding human creativity. There's this idea of like the closing of the Western frontier. Some some Americans got all the way out to California and then it's over. What do we do now? Well, when you're building using this substrate, you're not bounded by physics or the material world. So the potential to create stuff is limitless. And people of any sort, anywhere in the world, can create it without having special access to Silicon Valley, without having to knock three times on some door and get permission. It's open. It, obviously, people have different uh, levels of education and access to internet and, and, and knowledge about things like that, of course. But it's, it's this open place for creation for anybody. And the, the rules are limitless. And that's the coolest thing. And you can bring it with you. I only have three words to say. Sovereignty humanity, and decentralization. Culture, community, creativity. Decentralization, security, scalability. <laughs> Thank you.